So, Brett, do you love your mommy? I do. A boy's best friend is his mother. What is that from? Psycho. <laughs> oh, yeah. She she really was a pal, that mom. You know, we all become our mothers, they say, but he really took it to a different level. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Are, are you going to ask me if I love my mommy? Oh, do you love your mommy? I do. My mommy is, in her words, a mighty mom. When I was growing up, she heavily identified with the character Mighty Mouse and presented herself as Mighty Mom. And it was her email for years. Oh, wow. That's neat. I remember when I had emails that weren't just my name. <laughs> I know. In the early internet days, people had such fun email names. Yeah. I'm, I miss those days. I do, too. In that spirit, shall we start the show? Let's do it. Let's do it. What do we do here at Necromancer, Brett? Well, normally every week we pick a movie. Shira picks a rom-com movie. I pick a horror film. And then we review the movies and then we remix the movies. We make the rom-com a horror, the horror a rom-com. But this week we did things a little bit different. That is right. In honor of Mother's Day coming up, you had a really cute idea that I was totally on board for. Uh, yeah, I thought instead of just picking movies that are like, oh, let's pick movies with moms is the theme. Uh, yeah, I thought instead of just doing the normal thing of let's pick movies with moms is the theme, uh, I thought, well, let's just have our moms pick the movie and see, see what happens. I love that idea because my mom is kind of the reason that I'm so passionate about movies. My mom is a, is a very passionate movie collector uh, and watcher. Uh, between my dad and I, it was really all about books but movies was the currency between my mom and I, except uh, uh, unlike us, she's not into horror. She's not into rom-coms as much as I am. She loves action movies. Uh, she's a fan of Wesley Snipes. Uh, oh, Steven wow. Seagal, Sonya's mom is a fan of Wesley Snipes. Uh, Sean Connery. Uh, any uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, all the badasses my mom likes, and the female badasses too. She introduced me to La Femme Nikita, which uh, oh, yeah. I think I, I recommended way back in uh, episode one, maybe. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I anytime I'm challenged in uh, you know, uh, games where you're just supposed to list movies like list a movie that begins with the last letter 
of the movie that somebody told you. I, I can just look at the movie shelf that I had at home as a kid and be able to keep going because I have so many movies in my brain. Yeah, uh, I remember... I remember doing a lot of things as a kid. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do when you don't have real responsibilities. Watch um, a ton of movies. Right. But I remember, I mean, I don't really remember associating my my um, childhood childhood with my mom in movies. I liked movies the normal amount. But as I grew up into a teenager and I started to realize that I liked movies more and more, my mom took me to a indie film theater for the first time and was like, let's start checking out some of these indie films. Wow. I remember, awesome. I remember hating it because the indie film theater that we went to stopped selling concessions in the middle of the movie, which I thought was a very bizarre choice of things to do. But uh, my mom was not, my mom was not as easily deterred away from, the from lack indie of concessions. films. Right. By such physical material things so um yeah we just kept going to movies so now like anytime there's a weird indie movie that comes out i'm always like asking my mom did you hear about this or she'll ask me did you hear about that um yeah so i was very surprised that both of our moms have very good taste in movies yeah and you know <laughs> my mom also again big introduction to indie movies. And, and my mom is uh, obsessed with the uh, Japanese culture because she's a martial artist, not because she's an anime nerd uh, like me. Um, and so she's seen all of the Zatoichi movies who, uh, oh, if yeah. you've never seen Zatoichi, he's a blind samurai uh, and he just goes from town to town being a badass. She has every single- He's Zato basically Ichi like- I was just going to say, he's basically like the Japanese James Bond. Oh, yeah. He's he's even cooler than James Bond because he's he's not even he's very Sakamoto like he's he's just kind of keeping it on the DL. And then he's a masseuse, I think, when he or a massage therapist when he's not sword fighting. Um, but but yeah, I I I, it, I think that's so interesting that our moms were the ones who to really give us our first taste of film culture, so to speak. Yeah. I have a question for you. Since a lot of independent movies tend to push the envelope as far as what's acceptable to show on screen, do you ever feel awkwardness if you're next to your mom during an explicit scene? Has that occurred? Have you ever seen, this is gonna, uh, I, I am a dummy, okay? I know that sometimes I come off as maybe I know what I'm doing, but I am a dummy. I had no idea what the term libertine meant. I'm sure you know you what the, that means. You mean you saw the Johnny Depp movie where he plays an 18th century libertine? Yes, with my mom that ends with a giant orgy on screen with people coming out riding a giant wooden dick. And that that was probably a little awkward. I remember we but that was so over the top that it was like, all right, come on. But no, yeah, there's a few scenes here and there. Um, I don't know. We're we're adults. 
<laughs> it's it's always weird, but it's you know, it's not like my mom is like Carrie and she's, you know, no sex. Pray to God, slapping me around with a Bible. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> Ask God for forgiveness. Uh, yeah, I like that neither of our moms are are like Carrie White's mom. I I think that's an important factor in us turning out the way that we did. Yeah. How about did you um were you allowed to watch like anything growing up or did you have restrictions or Oh, I was allowed to watch anything. I had a very non-traditional childhood where my my parents are uh they're libertarian and so they subscribe to uh what you could describe as laissez-faire parenting which means you get to decide almost like a montessori school exactly what you want to learn so i i never had any kind of you know parental locks on the kind of content i could see i think that's why Weirdly, I got more into fluffy stuff like rom-coms because, you know, I've seen all the action and violence and, you know, every kind of insane thing that could happen in a movie action-wise to where that doesn't even phase me or shock me anymore. And I just want something sweet and fluffy and relationship-driven. Yeah, I can get, I, I understand that. Um, my parents, I can't remember who it was, but like either my mom didn't want me watching the nudity stuff and my dad didn't want me watching the violent stuff or the other way around. So I, I couldn't watch whatever I wanted. But then after a certain point when it was like, all right, our son seems to have a, a fine head on his shoulders. He, I don't think he's going to go around killing people uh, you can watch whatever you want and after the first rated r movie it was like the floodgates opened and i was watching almost anything that i wanted is carrie rated r oh that's a good question i'll have to look that up i don't i don't remember but but segueing into the movie picks i think that your mom's pick of carrie was a brilliant one not only because carrie is such a great movie but it's about motherhood. It's a movie where the scares and the spooks aren't really driven by gore uh, so much as as by tension. Even though there's a bucket of blood, that's pretty much the only, it's the most violent and shocking thing that happens on camera. Yeah. um, My mom is not into horror movies, so... I think this was one of the first movies I saw with her where she was like, this movie is scary. And I was like, Ooh, we're going to, we're going to see a scary movie. Like this movie's going to, if, if this movie scares mom, Oh my God, this movie's got to be terrifying. And I remember as a kid, I was like, eh, whatever. But now but- watching it, well, watching it 20 years later or whatever, I'm like, holy crap, this movie's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, fear isn't always about, you know, Michael Myers lurking around the corner. There's also the fear of social outcome, of uh, all of the horrible things that happen to Carrie 
being bullied, like that kind of fear, the fear of social outcast, I think is much more scary than any kind of fear of death. No, yeah, I I agree. This movie, this movie is scary. It's tense. It's extremely well done. It, uh, I was surprised at how good it was. Oh, I I wasn't. Um, <laughs> I I remember seeing Carrie and liking it, um, but it it definitely held up. Should yeah. we should we get into Carrie first since we're, yeah, we're pretty much we're we're already there. We we decided to stay at high school and we also decided that Piper Lori needs to stay. I just the the connection between uh yeah, Pipe yeah, with Piper Lori. So freaking good Piper Lori. Yeah. Um oh, she's amazing. All right, let's let's jump into this summary. All right. So we begin during gym class, high school gym class. Uh, we're playing volleyball. They volley to Carrie. And of course, she misses the ball. And so everyone's like, wait a fucking go, Carrie, you loser. Uh, and then in the locker room, Carrie's taking a shower. And then even though she's a senior, she gets her first period. Uh, but Oof. this makes her panic and she thinks she's dying. She screams for help from the other girls in class. And then they respond by yelling at her, plug it up and throwing tampons and pads. Uh, coach Collins comes in, the women's coach, and she stops them. And she has to explain to Carrie what getting what periods are. And she lets her go home for the day. And then when Carrie goes back home, to her Tennessee Williams Southern Gothic house. Uh, she asks her mom why she never told her about periods. This is kind of important thing, an important thing to know. But then Carrie's mom, uh, typical mom behavior, she then locks Carrie in a prayer closet and makes her pray for forgiveness. Later, Carrie is allowed to go back to her room and then she breaks a mirror with her mind which is how she discovers she's got telekinesis. Uh, and then at the same time, Sue Snell, another girl from class who participated in the bullying in the locker room, decides that she is feeling guilty. So she asked her boyfriend, Tommy Ross, to ask Carrie to the prom. So meanwhile, the girls who bullied Carrie, they have to do detention with Coach Collins. And the lead bully, Chris, is just fed up. And so she walks off and Coach Collins is like, man, well, you're not going to get to go to prom now. But Chris decides that she's going to get revenge on Carrie with the help of her boyfriend, Billy. So Chris, Billy, and their friends kill a pig, get one of their own on the prom committee so that Carrie and Tommy are on the ballot. And then they rig up a bucket of pig blood right above the stage. Carrie and her mom have a fight about Carrie going to the prom and then Carrie reveals her telekinesis and stands up to her mom and says she's going to that prom. Oof, what a I, badass scene. Oof, I love it. I fucking love it. Uh, and then we get to prom night. Carrie's mom warns her that they're all going to laugh at you and begs Carrie not to go. Uh, everything seems to be going well at first. Carrie and Tommy have a nice time. They dance, they kiss. Uh, and then due to Chris's scheme, they're named prom king and queen. 
So Sue shows up to the dance. Oh, this is this is masterclass tension. Sue it's so good. Sue Sue shows up and she figures out what Chris is about to do, uh, and then she tries to stop it. But then Coach Collins thinks that she's there to fuck with Carrie's moment, uh, and so Sue managed to get kick, kicked out of the gym and saved her own life. Uh, wouldn't have known that, but then. So Chris pulls the rope, the blood drops on Carrie. She sees what appears to her to be everyone laughing at her. The bucket falls and it knocks Tommy out. I will also note here, detail, you can see Tommy mouthing what the fuck when it happens. And then he gets knocked out. So you get the impression that Tommy would have immediately been like, this is insane. How dare you guys do this? This is fucked up. Um, But the good guy, the hero is done. Um, So then Carrie uses her telekinesis to lock everyone inside. She kills every person in the gym, then sets it on fire. Chris and Billy manage to make it out and they're chasing uh, Carrie in a car as Carrie is walking down the road, bloody iconic scene. She looks back at the car, flips it with her telekinesis, and then it explodes. Chris and Billy are dead. Now Carrie's made it home. Uh, She sees that her mom has lit a ton of candles, like there was a Yankee candle going on a business sale. Like, it's just covered in candles. Uh, She goes upstairs, takes a bath, and changes. And then when she calls for her mom... Her mom emerges from a hiding space behind the door. She was just standing there the entire time. Uh, And Carrie's mom reveals that Carrie is the product of rape uh, and that the sin cannot be washed away. Carrie goes in for a hug. Her mom stabs her in the back. Carrie stumbles into the kitchen. Her mom tries to kill her again. Carrie uses her telekinesis to uh, stab her mother and she wounds her very similarly to St. Sebastian, who was shot full of arrows. And that's the same saint that is in the prayer closet. Uh, And then the house basically falls on them and Carrie and her mom are dead. Sue is traumatized. Her mom didn't allow her to go to any funerals. Uh, and we end with Sue serenely walking up to Carrie's, essentially her grave. And as she goes to lay flowers onto the grave, Carrie's hand pops up and grabs her. And then Sue wakes up from her dream and she's screaming like crazy. And her mom's trying to grab her and say it's okay. But she's still living in the nightmare. The end. The end. What a movie. Ah. <sighs> What a movie. And it's just over. Both of these movies are pretty much 90 minutes. That's uh love 90 minutes. I a, a, a necromancer hit. It's it's the, the necromancer star of approval. Yes, I it's because movies today are too long. They're way too long. And I know this movie starts. I wrote every time she used her powers, and she only uses them a handful of times, but she uses her her powers for the very first time six minutes into the movie. On the on the bully on or no on the little kid who who called her creepy Carrie. 
No, that's the third time she used okay, her powers. Okay, when's, when's, oh wait, I know the first time. So the first time she uses her powers is when she's getting bullied and the light bulb breaks, and right? light pops, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and then, then the second time is in the office with the ashtray. Yeah. Carrie did it in the office with the ashtray. <laughs> uh, I love yeah. what dicks the teachers in this movie are. Like, even though Coach Collins tries to help Carrie, she says to the principal, I wanted to slap her too. And then the principal calls her Cassie. And oh, then the yeah. English teacher makes fun of her for calling Tommy Ross's plagiarized poem beautiful. How dare they? Um, I... Uh... I don't know. I thought that, um, who was it? Miss Collins, Coach Collins. I thought she was a very interesting character. Cause like she said, she, she was, she was almost shook up by the fact that her reaction was the same as the girls's reaction, which was, Oh yeah. How, how are you overreacting to such a normal thing? But then again, to Carrie, she, that's not normal that she, in that moment, she thinks she's dying. <laughs> Coach Collins can can put together that, you know, the, the sane reaction to someone reacting this way is to just kind of slap them around a bit and go, get a hold of yourself. But at the same time, she knows that Carrie is coming from a house that she doesn't know exactly what's going on, but she knows that Carrie's coming from a house where this wasn't explained to her. And she knows that the, the students are not completely, I don't, she, she can understand where the students are coming from, but then the next thing she does is she, she, she knows that compassion is the key to comforting Carrie but she doesn't really show that same compassion towards the other students. And in the end, that's kind of what brings about her downfall and the school's downfall is that, you know, she keeps pushing the kids. She keeps punishing the kids who made fun of Carrie, not realizing that that's just going to, you know, create Make that them. Looney Tunes-esque, like, you have a gun? Okay, I have a cannon. You have a cannon? I have a nuclear bomb, you know? Well, yeah, she she turned Carrie into a more threatening force because, oh, Car it was easy for Chris to then say, Carrie is the reason why I'm not going to prom. Right. It's her fault. Um, I have a I have a question for you. Do you think that Coach Collins was actually laughing at Carrie when she got covered in blood or Carrie was only imagining her laughing? Because when they first cut to the audience, only Chris is really laughing, I think. And or PJ Chris is, And uh, PJ her friend with the hat? Yeah. 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 It's totally. Just, it's uh, it's just, the, the girl it's just from them. Halloween. Oh my God, I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I hated her stupid fucking hat. I, Chris and her friends, I, I hate all of them. They're, they're awful people. Um, but it, at first, when they cut back to the audience, everybody's just surprised. Um, not necessarily everybody's laughing, but then when you get, you know, 
Carrie's kaleidoscope view. Yeah. It she's looking at specific people and she looks at Mrs. Collins or Miss Collins and she's laughing. Do you think she was actually laughing? <laughs> I don't. I you, thought about uh, that while this scene was happening and um I thought it was an interesting choice. I was I was tense thinking like are they really going to laugh at her or cuz this is a horrible thing that just happened. And as an as a an audience member watching the movie, I I can imagine that this movie instantly hit pop culture and that the prom scene was all anyone was talking about. Right. So I I know that something bad is going to happen at prom. And right, I mean, the movie makes no like effort to hide it. The whole movie is about we're going to fuck with Carrie on prom. That, well, you see, that's exactly why I like this movie or this style of movie more than a lot of movies today, because it's not a twist that right. Carrie is going to get pranked at prom. You know it because you're following Chris's every move. You follow them as they go to slaughter a pig which have these guys never heard of an asian grocery store animal blood is is actually it, it's an interesting cooking ingredient in some in some recipes it it you know it takes things up a notch you definitely didn't need to kill that pig but for the whole vengeful goddess animal sacrifice symbolism it's just mm, perfect perfect um but yeah, you follow it. And so there's so much tension because you know that all of the happy moments that Carrie is experiencing during the prom, getting told that she's beautiful, getting to kiss Tommy Ross, uh, it's, it's just borrowed time. And yeah. her mom, Piper Lori, is right. They're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, it's super. T and there's that one shot because they never show all the pieces together. You know, they kind of until they, they go to split screen for the the telekinesis killing. Well, yeah. So they they give you a hint of this. They give you a hint of that. They 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 have all the pieces in motion. But then right before the blood gets dumped, there's a great shot, like a a one. You know, a so one many shot. great shots in this movie. So many. There's a great tracking shot where the camera is just kind of like lollygagging around and then it finds a rope and then it like, oh, what's this rope doing? And it follows oh, the rope up. It gets to the Sue bucket of blood. figures out what's going on? Um, no, I think it's before that. It's, it's as they announce Carrie is the... It's as they announce Carrie is going to be the queen. Mm. And so the 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 camera tracks up the rope, goes over to the bucket of blood, sits atop the bucket of blood for a while, then kind of comes back down and then zooms in on Carrie. And it's just this whole, it's just winding up that rubber band. And the whole time, it's like, you know, you know what's going to happen. But you just ah oh, like it's you, every time you watch the movie, I, I imagine it, it's like maybe this time it won't happen. The cinematography in this movie is really great. Uh, it um, just the way that they tell the story visually with with the images over saying anything is so fascinating. I 
I had linked you to an article on the cinematographer Mario Tosi. And to me, it makes so much sense that an Italian American cinematographer would be the person to tackle this project, especially with so much of the religious iconography. And I would say during the prom scene, the way that uh, Chris and Billy are staged almost impishly, like yeah. they're the little devilish imps under the stage and they're like, he, 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 we're about to do something evil and delightful. And it just, it's so satanic. Uh, and, and then the St. Sebastian imagery uh, with the, uh, with Piper Laurie when when she dies, uh, and the sh- the way that the lighting and the shadows are in that in that uh, right when Carrie comes home and she's just standing at the top of the attic stairs uh, in front of the bathroom, and then Piper Laurie is on a mark behind the bathroom door. The way that it's lit, and then the way that it you know, that tells a different story when she goes into the bathroom and then she lights the, or she turns the lights on and then you can see Piper Laurie behind the door. It's just, it's staged so brilliantly. Yeah, I think both of these movies are really, like on paper, they're both really silly and stupid. Mm -hmm. But just the execution of them is so spot on from from everything from the the dialogue to the camera to the staging to the acting the acting in both of these movies is great i mean sissy spacek delivers (laughs) (laughs) delivers a great perfect she's so otherworldly that yeah when she turns into like carrie you know blood pig soaked carrie she looks she looks like an alien who's just been teleported into a human body and she has no idea what's going on. So she just attacks everyone. And then she's like, she's still, she's not like mad. She's like, what is this? Like what weird world am I living in? Uh, Well, yeah, she's amazing. Piper Laurie is just incredible. Uh, And I don't know, you, it's, it's a really tough character to play Carrie because she has to be so other that there's something about her that even if you feel sorry for her, if you, if you, you know, you know, you want Carrie to have the beautiful prom experience. There is something that's so other about her that characters like Miss Collins, it's, it's almost like otherness is something that stains you where it's like, if I become associated with Carrie, I would become other too. And the things that are repulsive in her would be seen in, in me. I feel like that's what, what the other female characters are meant to be rejecting or, or fighting against when it comes to just this awful bullying of Carrie. Yeah. What about the scene where Miss Collins is talking to Carrie? In the mirror? In the mirror. And she's like, if you just put on a little bit of mascara, if you just put on a little bit of lipstick, put your hair a little bit up. For me, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to, did you have any thoughts on that scene or? 
Yes. I feel like <laughs> in a lot of movies that deal with with women understanding their feminine power, looking into the mirror and seeing yourself as beautiful is the first step to taking control of that power. And you remember right after she has that mirror pep talk is when she goes home and she stands up to her mother because she's seen herself as a woman for the first time. And that allows her to be assertive. I was talking about La Femme Nikita earlier. There's a scene in La Femme Nikita where Nikita, before she got into the spy training program, she was just a gutter punk addicted to drugs. So she's never seen herself as beautiful. And then she has to start taking classes with this older spy lady who's going to teach her how to be sexy in French. Uh, And the first thing she does is take Nikita to the mirror and tell her that she needs to feel herself as being beautiful before she can appear beautiful to other people. And she practices smiling in the mirror or whatever. But that is one of the first steps for a woman understanding her feminine power is to look at the surface image and know inside that they have this power. Did you think it was weird or do you think there's anything? I don't know. I feel like there's subtext, but I don't know what it is when the camera just kind of pushes in a little bit on Miss Collins and she's kind of like, giving a a little look. You think Collins is hot for Carrie? I don't see. I don't know. That's I was hoping that you would be smarter than me and like immediately go, oh, yeah, this is probably what the movie is trying to say in this moment. Whereas to me, it just felt a little bit like homoerotic. I mean, homoerotic is maybe not the the term I'm thinking of because that implies it's erotic. Like this wasn't a this was more an internal character beat, and not it wasn't it mm-hmm. it didn't feel like I was supposed to go like ooh they're gonna do it or anything like that. But I don't know this stereotype of female gym teachers and you know i i just i i felt like there was something there and i didn't know what it was so my dumb male brain was like "Ooh, ladies kiss (laughs) no i think that it's in in the heroine's journey versus the classic sort of joseph campbell hero's journey setup the heroine often meets character well, oh, no, actually, no, it's true for the hero's journey that you meet characters that are mentors. Um, but in the heroine's journey, a lot of times those mentors are morally ambivalent or morally bad. Uh, so the wicked stepmother or, you know, duplicitous witch magical beings. So I think that there is definitely this idea that when a woman is under another woman's mentorship, it's not necessarily a trustworthy relationship. And so I think that maybe in the way that Coach Collins mentors Carrie, there is some self-interest there where, you know, like you're saying earlier, bad on Coach Collins to keep pushing Carrie to do all these things, which ultimately lead to her killing everybody at the prom. But I think that maybe it has a lot to do with the way Coach Collins sees herself versus 
actually caring about carry maybe right no yeah i think coach collins is a terrific character because like I said, yeah. she, she makes some, she makes some really bad decisions but they're only bad because we the <laughs> audience know that the movie ends with a prom night massacre so you yeah. totally understand where she's coming from and i love the scene where they're in the principal's office and they're like go home just go home and carrie does not want to go home and me thinking like if i was watching this movie for the very first time i'd be thinking yeah just go home home is safety home is comfort home is not when you have a way when things are bad at school and then you know if you've never seen the movie or you know, there's just the great tension of like once she gets home oh no no uh, no no no, no. Last place you'd want to be after something like this. So I thought that was really good, uh, really good tension and really good filmmaking of you know. And and again, Sissy Spacek just kind of like being sheltered and abused and you know, like you can tell something's wrong with her, but you don't know what it is until you kind of get all the pieces. Right. Uh, it. I I parted my hair in the middle today in solidarity with Carrie. <laughs> like. Uh, 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 she, it is a really, I think that both she and Piper Laurie got, uh, nominated for best actor and best supporting actor, or I mean, actress for Carrie. Yeah, I could see it. This, uh, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, I know that the, I know it's, it's, it's cool to make fun of the Oscars and I mean, the Oscars are silly and stupid. Right. And I'll, I'll, it's I'll reference silly that. to recognize actors for good work. You know, that's no, 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 no. something. I'll, I'll justify that. I'll justify that at the end with my, with my pick. I'll, I'll tie it all back together. I'll do a callback. Uh -huh. I'm setting it for a callback, but I mean, they're silly and stupid, but like, yeah, everything is silly and stupid. Right. So, right. Uh, but it is kind of disappointing. Like I don't, I don't think about the Oscars and hold them to like, oh, this is, this is, you know, like, yeah, you're right. It's cool. We like to celebrate movies. I like to celebrate movies. I try to be positive when it comes to the Oscars and I try not to let things like this get me down, which is back in the day, Oscars were maybe a little more open to stuff like horror movies getting more recognition. I mean, Shape of Water just won recently for Best Picture. So it's not like, horror movies are getting totally snubbed left and right at 100%. But, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know, there's something about it. There's something nice when a horror movie gets a nom or recognition. I feel that exact same way when a romantic comedy wins big. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's... both of our genres have a pretty low batting average at the Oscars. Yeah, comedies have it. Comedy is really hard, though. It's not just that comedy is hard to make, but comedy is so like it's hard to be universally funny. Yes. And I don't. It's just, I can get why comedies don't get nominated. It does suck, but it's also like I think Hot Rod is one of the most funniest movies I've ever oh, seen. Oh, it's hilarious! And if I showed that to a hundred people, I bet you ninety of them would call me insane and fall asleep halfway into the movie and think I'm an idiot. I so, don't agree. I think it's a hilarious movie. Yeah, but uh, I, yeah, but 
that's why we have a podcast together because we have similar tastes <laughs> in movies. <laughs> but if I showed it to a hundred randos, they they probably mostly overwhelmingly would be like, "This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen." Yeah, no, I I do agree that that comedy can be hard to nail universally, but it's it's been done before. I wish I could just start listing things off the top of my head, but I can't. So I'll I'll just have to provide answers later. But I know that there have been comedies that have won that have managed to get that appeal. Yeah, um, it happens. Yeah, it happened one night, I think, swept at the Oscars. And that's a oh, screwball yeah. romantic comedy. But that was in the 30s. Yeah. So before we get into our Carrie rom-coms, who did you have a crush on from Carrie? Okay. Um, well, before that, real quick, I want okay. to just say that I, for both of these movies, I related them to Avengers. Because I think... Avengers are great movies. I love Marvel and what they're doing. Uh, and so Carrie is like Avengers because uh, uh, I, I'm just going to go with the general consensus on this, right? Because I don't want this to become a Marvel versus DC conversation or whatever. But the general consensus is that Marvel's really kind of knocking it out of the park and DC is maybe stalling and stuttering. And the, the thing about Avengers is, you know, they have all these supplemental movies and, and, and individual movies to build up to Avengers. So they're putting in the time to get the big payoff, whereas DC is just kind of trying to go for that big payoff, you know. And it makes sense. They got Zack Snyder to direct the movies. He's a very flashy, big payoff-y kind of guy. But, uh, you know, it's I think that's one of the things that, like as I was watching Carrie, there's so much to take away from Carrie. And the thing that you don't want to take away from Carrie is, oh, she gets covered in blood and just kills everyone. Because that's the big payoff. But you have to set up the payoff. You have to build that tension. You have to really like lean into the cliches of certain characters so that, you know, you can use that as shorthand so that later you can bring out all this this tension and and make it sappy but also make like when it when she's at prom and tommy's being super nice to her it's so sappy and cheesy and stupid and silly but you just feel so good for carrie no Ugh. but it, it it so that but that's exactly what even it builds the tension even more even because you're already tense as fuck because you know it's prom night tonight is the night that carrie's gonna get blood dumped over her and everything's gonna be ruined and like if carrie was already having a terrible night and she was just like god tommy's such a douchebag i'm gonna get out of here early you'd be like oh my god yay she's escaped she's gotten away it's it's okay carrie's gonna be okay and they even tease you when Tommy's talking about the things that they'll do as they leave the prom, because right. Carrie has to be home early. She can't stay, but he promises that they're going to go to, I guess, like, I don't know, a fast food place or somewhere where all the teens go right. um, on the way home. And you're imagining like how nice it would be if you make it there, but you know that like all of this, all of these wonderful, sweet moments are about to have blood dumped all over them. Oof. So good. Uh, but yeah, in that in that vein, I would say Tommy. Tommy was my crush on this movie. 
He's so good. I, just the scene between him and uh, his his girlfriend and Coach Collins, where Coach Collins is like, leave Carrie alone. He's like, all right, fine. And his girlfriend's like, no, ask Carrie out to prom. He's like, ah, I mean, she is my girlfriend. I don't know. <laughs> and- I think it's it's very important that Tommy is not the type of guy to immediately agree to something like this because he knows it's weird. He knows that it's kind of not actually nice to have your girlfriend make you ask someone to prom. And you know, what's even sadder is Carrie. She suspects that it's some kind of prank from the get go. As soon as Tommy asks her, she knows that he never would have asked her of his own volition. She knows that there's some, something going on and it takes a trusted adult like miss collins to tell her it's okay and then even miss collins has to go and check to say okay are you guys pranking her or is this for real uh so tommy enters the scheme reluctantly but then he's he i my crush is tommy too no question he's just (laughs) he's a golden god he's so cute and perfect um, but Tommy's reluctant into the scheme, which I think makes him a good guy. He's a cinnamon roll. He's a good boyfriend. And he ultimately decides to do it, you know, after he's thought about it. And then when he's with Carrie, he actually tries to make her have a good time. He tries to make her feel good. He tries to make her feel pretty. He gives her such a sweet little kiss you know, he's not slobbery or rude. And, and he is the only person who makes her feel like she's she belongs, even though he plagiarized his poems, which Ugh. shame on you, Tommy. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that the movie didn't go for the sort of cliche, which is a fine cliche, the cliche of, I'm being paid to go out with you, but then I really fall in love with you kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, you get just the wasn't sense enough that, time. Right, yeah, this movie is not about her and Tommy. So you just get the sense, though, that Tommy isn't trying to seduce her to be his girlfriend, to be his wife, and spend the rest of his, their lives together. He's just like, you know, Carrie Carrie does seem like a nice girl, I, I, she, she should have a nice prom. I'm just going to give her a nice prom. Like you feel like yes. there's not really, uh, I feel like Tommy would let her down easy after prom and go like, Hey, I do have a girlfriend. This was a very nice night. Thank you for this prom night. I'll remember it forever, but it was just one night. And you, I, I think you kind of also get the sense that Carrie is, she knows that it's a, a fleeting moment, but she she just can't help but get lost in the moment. And then, pfft, pig's blood. Yeah, no, I I mean I don't know so much about whether or not he'd let her down or what would have happened after. Um, I mean, certainly I take my rom com in an interesting direction regarding that triangle. Um, but I think the important thing is that Tommy would have been the hero if he didn't get knocked out by the bucket. Like he was totally ready to defend Carrie and to, you know, fuck with anybody who was responsible for it, but he gets knocked out. There's nothing that he could have done to help. Yeah. It's a, it's a tragedy, but it's, I also like though that they don't show Tommy getting murdered. 
Yeah, I mean, he's really just a casualty at the yeah, end. Yeah, I, I like that, um, you know, we like Tommy. We don't need to see Tommy get brutally burned or murdered or, you know. But Miss Collins yeah. gets decapitated, right? Or does she just uh, get she, crushed? She gets, yeah, she gets her abdomen crushed. and But that's like a horrific... You know, something bad is happening to a character that we empathize with. And it's not gratuitous violence, but it is a little, you know, there's a tiny bit of gore in, involved. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Masterclass of filmmaking, Carrie. Holy oh, smokes. Brian De Palma. Mm, amazing. <laughs> yeah, when I was watching this, I was thinking, man, uh, Quentin Tarantino rips from De Palma as much as De Palma rips from Hitchcock, you know? <laughs> It's trickle down film ideas. So, do you want to get into remixes? Yes, let's get into these remixes. Um, Yeah, we had another another chance at some high school remixes. Or wait, no, I'm saying another chance because we're recording these out of order. So, um, delete or ignore that. but uh yeah so i um i I guess i'll I'll go first my rom-com was inspired by just the incredible number of netflix high school rom-coms these days that have the um the cyrano setup and the cyrano setup if you're not familiar with is from the play cyrano de bergerac another one of my mom's favorites I'm sure she would be proud of me for bringing this reference. But the idea is this hot guy decides to woo this woman, but he's not very smart. So he gets somebody else to write all of his love letters for him. And then in the process of giving that guy the right things to say to his lover, the person writing the thing, Cyrano in this instance, falls in love with the same love object. Uh, And there's at least three different Netflix high school rom-coms with this exact plot. Like Sierra Burgess is a loser. Um, There's one that just came out that's like the lesbian version. Uh, I forget what the name of this movie is called, but I actually really want to watch it. Uh, so I did I did kind of a Cyrano twist with the Sue, Tommy, Carrie triangle. Gotcha. Uh, but I, I gave it a bit of a modern spin. So the name of this movie is called How to Carry On. So kind of like Carrie's version of Goodwill Hunting. Mm. You know, I like, like Carrie, Carrie, yeah, yeah. Carrie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Sue Snell and Carrie White, they move in completely different worlds at the same high school. But after Sue's given detention for participating in bullying Carrie in the locker room, Sue's then forced to rethink her treatment of Carrie. And she decides she wants to do something to help Carrie come out of her shell. So similar to the original movie, uh, she goes to Tommy and asks him to uh, help and to ask Carrie out. Tommy's not really jazzed. Um, but he does point out that Carrie compliments his poems in class. Uh, there's a twist though. Sue and Tommy do their homework together every night. Uh, and they have for the past four years of high school. And Sue has done all of Tommy's creative writing assignments because she wanted to help him 
have, you know, good grades to remain on all of the sports teams that he plays for. So when we know that Carrie loves Tommy's poetry, she actually loves Sue's poetry. So they work out the classic Cyrano scheme where Sue is just going to tell Tommy exactly what to do and say to, to get Carrie to trust him and like him. Uh, and so by the time we get to sort of the middle act where we're, you know, we've been Cyranoing for a while, um, things are going exactly how you would expect. Tommy and Sue are both into Carrie um, and then Carrie is into Tommy but specifically this version of Tommy that Sue and him have created. Uh, And then Sue, she can't help herself. She starts befriending Carrie on her own as Tommy is doing his thing. And she goes to Carrie's house and she learns about Carrie's restrictive home life. And it's like, oh, now I understand why Carrie is the way that she is. And then Carrie reveals to Sue that she can move things with her mind. So I decided to keep Carrie's telekinesis. Yeah. <laughs> um, might as well. I, I didn't really have her do that much with it, though. Um, but Sue, she really wants to tell Carrie the truth, um, but she, uh, but she's scared to. And so she and Tommy have a talk. She tells Tommy that she's into Carrie. And it's really funny because they're both like, I'm into Carrie. Oh, well, I'm into Carrie, too. And Sue's like, yeah, I know. And Tommy's like, oh, well, I've, we've got a problem. Uh, and then she, Sue asked Tommy, well, do you still love me? And then he asked, well, do you still love me? And she says, I do, which makes this all the more confusing. And then he says, I know how you feel. What a predicament, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're still into each other, but they're also into Carrie and it, it, what, what's going to happen at the end? Oh, my God. Um, so fast forward to the night before prom. Carrie's had enough. She's going to stand up to her mom. Maybe she has a big old speech where she asks her mama if she ever really loved her. And then Mama White says something very Tennessee Williams-like and mean. Uh, and then Carrie decides to leave home she's she's done she's done done with home and now there's this thing where you're like whose house is she gonna go to is she gonna go to sue for help or is she gonna go to tommy for help which person is carrie going to choose and then it makes it look like maybe carrie is gonna go to tommy's house because that's what you expect right um but then she goes to sue and so once she goes to sue's place uh sue decides to spill the beans uh, and and tell her what happened. And then Carrie's, of course, ah, you lied to me. You betrayed me. And then she spends the night at school because she has nowhere else to go. Okay. Uh, and then prom day, Sue and Tommy both try to apologize to Carrie, but then Carrie's using her telekinesis to just like, you know, get out of here, get away from me. Um, and then... Uh, during the day while everybody else is getting ready for prom, Carrie is doing stuff to emancipate herself from her mom. So Carrie is doing the important work to get herself away from her abusive home situation. She's asking for help. She's, you know, showing what it's like to get help in a situation like that. She's, she's got to solve her own problems before she solves her love life. So we get to the prom, 
And Sue and Tommy are there and they're all gussied up waiting for Carrie to pick them. And then Carrie comes to the prom, but she's not dressed up for prom because she was busy doing other stuff during the day. Um, And because it's a high school movie, she'll give like a Netflix teen rom-com speech about being yourself and asking for help and subverting expectations, blah, blah, blah. And then in the end, she tells Sue and Tommy that she chooses both of them. And it ends with them in a three-way kiss, which then gets broken up by the chaperones because they are not ready for that kind of activity at prom. Yeah, um, go carry. But yeah, that that I decided to uh, end the Cyrano problem on a thruple even though it's a, a strange <laughs> i i took it in a very strange direction and i don't i don't i don't think i would actually make this movie unlike some other remixes no, where I, yeah, I was like oh, this would be rom-com happy ending everyone's happy it it could be the first rom-com for polyamorous people <laughs> could be Love is love is love. Uh, so what about you? For, all right. So for my remake, I I kind of only have half a remake. I only have like a, a really okay. general idea. So maybe we can maybe we can spitball some ideas and, and yes. see what we come up with as we go. Uh, I decided because this was super hard. This was super hard. I think I did two. I started to work on two pitches for movies before I realized I was just doing straight up horror movies. I came up with some really cool concepts for horror sequel ideas for Carrie. I mean, I say like cool ideas, cool in the sense of, you know, they're cool in a a five minute chunk of podcast, not as an actual movie idea. Um, I came up with so many cool little ideas for remakes and repitches and remixes, but I every time I was like, oh wait, there's no romance or comedy in these in these. Uh, so the thing that I, I got started was my my idea was that there's a a girl who has a special skill, and at the end of the movie, the skill becomes something that should be laughed at but becomes the heroic oh my god this just saved the day right and so the 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 sandwich of that idea the, yeah. the bookends the beginning and middle of that idea is maybe carrie knows martial arts and but martial arts is seen as like an eastern don't do because she grows up she grows up in the very bible belty south right so she knows martial arts i I don't know if maybe her mom is uh is with her or against her on this you know we'll, we'll have to play against type against carrie type it sounds like some heretic eastern shit i feel like carrie's mom would be very threatened by eastern philosophy Yes, but who, I mean, who would have taught her the martial arts? I don't know. Maybe she just reads it from a book, right? That's how they always learn it in those 70s kung fu movies. It's like, oh, here's a book of poses. Now I know mantis style. 
Um, it could be just like Splinter in the Ninja Turtles movie, where while she's trapped in the prayer closet, through a crack in the door, she's watching kung fu movies. Uh, I thought you were going to say she's moving watching along rats with them. fight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but the, the big idea that I had was because, you know, high school and stakes and all this, everything is so dramatic. The idea that I had was she's from a little rinky dinky, super rinky dinky town. And so her school has like no sports, no cheerleading, no nothing. But there's the big town next door that has like the mega Friday night lights, big you know, I don't know what the high school version of Super Bowls are, but, you know, they have the big school with the big cheerleader and all that stuff. And one of their cheerleaders or something happens, maybe it's like a, uh, what I'm thinking is, you know how sometimes in schools they have those things for like inner city schools where you have to let a certain number of inner city kids go to other schools. Does that sound familiar or no? Like a charter school? No, I don't. It, it's like, um, I don't know. So, but the idea is that the school for some bureaucratic reason is saying to the super high school that you need to allow one person, at least one person to be on your cheerleading squad from the rinky dink school. So there's tryouts and this is where like some of the stuff comes in where there's tryouts and Carrie doesn't want to be a cheerleader, but she needs to go to the super high school because there she has a much, much, much better chance of getting a scholarship and then maybe going off to college. And, you know, we can set all these stakes up in a very goofy, obvious way. Mm -hmm. But So Sue has to teach Carrie how to dance and be a girly girl and all that stuff. And so there's hijinks involved and stuff like that. But then I'm like, I don't I don't really have a, a romance angle to this. But she could be a flyer. So she's got the martial arts skill to be a flyer and cheerleading. Well, right? then what I was going to say is, you know, part of the, the tension is that the girls at the super high school don't want Carrie to be because, you know, halfway into the movie, Carrie, she's different. Right, halfway into the movie, Carrie wins the opportunity to go to the new school, but now it's like, oh shit, now she, like, yeah, she beat out all these rinky-dink cheerleaders, but now she's going up against the super squad of cheerleaders. And can she stand, you know, can she hold her own, you know, or is she gonna, is one little slip up gonna cause this super cheerleading squad to not get their super trophy or whatever? So all the girls- Well, all the comedy- Oh, sorry. I was go just ahead. gonna say. So all the girls are really hard on Carrie, and and the we're we're building up the stakes that Carrie is going to mess up, and then again, this is a very half baked idea. We can try to find you know sometimes with stupid ideas like this, if you just lean into the comedy, like um, so it kind of reminds me of uh the the release schedule of this might get mixed up, but it reminds me of the Lady Eve where uh where the the guy is saying well that can't be the same girl that i fell in love with because she's so right. similar you know like we'll, we'll think of something silly to do but basically the girls at the mm -hmm. super high school are like if carrie's gonna fuck this up then we're gonna make sure that we look good but that it's only her that looks bad so they switch the song and dance 
at the big cheerleading try at the big cheerleading event so that they all know what they're doing but carrie is gonna look like a fool it's like no what about what is sue gonna do is sue gonna stop it she can't no one can stop it uh so carrie has to improvise and go with her gut and training and her her martial arts because martial arts isn't just about external mastery of the body and you know kicking ass it's about the internal zen go with the flow right be like water so she uses her martial arts dodginess to spin dance cheerlead her way around the other cheerleaders and we'll have some cool cheerleading like you know in cheerleading how you throw your arms out really big like the the Mm -hmm. the super cheerleaders will be throwing their arms out really big but carrie will be using her martial arts skills to dodge it but while she's dodging it she's like doing capoeira type cheerleading dances so Oh, and she's really wowing the judges, too. So the idea is that at the end of prom, Carrie is humiliated, and then she kills everyone. At the end of this movie, um, Carrie is humiliated, but everyone loves her for it because she's able to spin it in her own way. She's able to use her powers to bring them back on her side. They failed. They failed to humiliate her. And so then, yeah, the movie just has a happy ending, uh, traditional happy ending. Yeah. So if you were to add a romance to that, would you make the romance between her and Sue? I think so. Because, yeah, I was, yeah, I don't know. Because I was thinking, you know, I know that we're we're very same-sex couple friendly. Obviously, we're even multi-sex couple Mm -hmm. friendly now. Thanks, Shira. I want to support polyamory as well. Um, but love is love. I don't know. I, I just I, I was I was trying to I was trying to do something really cool instead of just go with like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, her and Sue fall in love. And it's just the typical romance. But I, I wanted to try to have some spin on it. But I couldn't. Again, I just got lost in the horror. Anytime I tried to add a romance to the movie. I just kept coming up with these horrific things to to do for the characters. But you did. You I feel like giving a competition element is definitely something to do. There I mean there's the Kirsten Dunst cheerleading movie um Bring It On. God, why am I Yeah, Bring It On. Bring It On is a rom-com. There's there's also a side romance in that movie, but it's all about the cheerleading competition. Right and coming up with an original routine and then sugar and spice their cheerleaders and bank robbers. Oh yeah. Uh, and there's romance. Well, yeah. So, I mean, my idea uh, is like a solid silly little riff that. on Carrie, if it was a comedy, but I, I really mm-hmm. neglected the ROM part of the rom-com. I mean, sometimes it doesn't come together. Like when we did false identities uh, and I was trying to do a rom-com for the aura, I ended up just doing Weekend at yeah, Bernie's in Argentina. <laughs> I just, you know, I couldn't really bring a lot of romance into that plot uh, because it was such a bleak movie. Uh, that was That was really hard to do. Well, in the interest of getting on, 
shall we move on to our next movie, The Thin Man? Yeah. So for The Thin Man, uh, this this is a little bit of the the how the podcast is made, see how the sausage is made kind of thing. Normally what I do is I watch the movie and then I, I try to come up with the synopsis, right? And the synopsis is pretty detailed, but, you know, I, I try to pick out what's important and what we can talk about in our, our review. Um, normally what I do is I go onto Wikipedia and I kind of read the Wikipedia and then I tweak it to my own little style. But for this movie, the moment the movie ended, I was like, how am I going to recap this movie? I was actually wondering the same thing. It made me glad that I made us recap the opposite genres yeah. to what we're fans of, because I, I I intended that because I wanted it to be from the perspective of someone who's not, you know, normally watching this genre. No, I like the fact that um, we recap the other person's movies because then you get that yeah, little twist but, of of. Like it's yeah. your perspective. Like I, I, I want to know your perspective when you're watching the rom-coms or or the comedies in this case. But after I watched the movie, I did think to myself, I don't envy Brett having to summarize this movie because they do so, so much in ninety minutes. So much. every scene has like ten layers. So I went onto Wikipedia and was like, "Oh my god, I hope there's just this, a really in-depth scene-by-scene breakdown." And the the plot on Wikipedia is like five sentences, and I was like, "Yeah, how how do you sum up this movie?" So I know that we usually go into spoilers and all that stuff, but I'm gonna be super vague in my recap because either you've seen okay. it or you haven't. And if you haven't seen it, go out and see it. It's a it's a movie. Oh boy, this is a movie. Um, yes. Oh wait, before we get into the summary, yeah. I I do want to give a background on this. So I asked my mom, uh, "Hey mom, do you have a rom com that I can choose for our Mother's Day episode?" And the first thing she says is, "Okay, how about the Thin Man?" And I'm like, "Oh well, I don't know the Thin Man." that's not exactly a, a rom-com and it, it is more of a comedy, but the reason that I, I ended up choosing the thin man is when it comes to romance fans, if you shoot the question out there, who are your favorite fictional couples in movies, Nick and Nora, Nick and Nora from the thin man are almost always high on people's lists. Like, when, when people think of couple goals and, yeah. and fictional couples that you feel for, lots of people love Nick and Nora. So it just, it seemed like a really good opportunity to talk about one of film's most famous and beloved they couples. They get along so well together. It's, it's a delight. And I'll, I'll bring that in uh, later, but... So here's here's my recap, which oh, and I, I do have to do a little bit of glossarying for this. Um, I know that we use the term Sakamoto okay. a lot, and so for people who don't know, yes. Sakamoto is an anime character who is in high school, and he's extremely competent at everything to a ridiculous level, and it's really fun. Uh, but for another anime little twist, uh, Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop. 
he nick charles definitely has more of a spike vibe because uh sakamoto is almost unreachable right. where the character who is a competent specialist is someone who you you can't imagine becoming close to them right. becoming bonded by them because their perfection is so alien to normal human experience and then cowboy bebop spike spiegel he's cool he's got this fun jazzy attitude he feels he he loves he has emotions but also he is cool af is that what you were yeah. thinking of so yeah pretty much what you said to to build on that it's uh he's very aloof he's very easygoing he's very kind of silly in some regards like he doesn't take anything seriously but he is so sharp and he nothing gets by him and when it is time to like act under pressure he is just unfazed and so spike does have the old julia and the his rival thing going on so he does have more of an edge he does have something that he cares about but for the most part both characters are just really laid back guys who act very competently under pressure and it's so cool to see um and then they're never they never they're never serious right. they're always joking yeah which I think is really oh, so great. Cool. Okay, so the thin man. An inventor has to disappear for a while. He is missing money. He accuses his secretary slash lover. He goes away and he never comes back. The daughter of the inventor goes to Nick Charles, basically the Spike Spiegel of the movie, who used to be a detective. He's throwing a Christmas party. She tries to get him involved. Everyone who was associated with the inventor in one way or another tries to get Nick involved. The cops try to get Nick involved. Nick's wife, Nora, tries to convince him to get Nick involved. And Nick spends the entire first third trying to not get involved. Uh, then the inventor's lover slash secretary is murdered and everyone thinks the inventor did it. So while Nick tries his best to mind his own business, all the suspects keep finding ways to come back to him to declare their innocence to Nick. And Nick doesn't care. <laughs> uh, so then another victim dies. Once again, everyone thinks the inventor did it. Now as Nick is starting to get dragged into the case, it's not that he's trying to be reluctant, but now he starts to follow along, but out of a very casual, sheer curiosity, right? And what's great is there's so many characters in this movie and everyone has a motive. Ah, so good. Uh, so as Nick starts to, as Nick starts to snoop around a bit more and get involved, things heat up when he finds another dead body buried in the inventor's workshop. Everyone thinks it's the rival of the inventor, but Nick puts it together super quick that the dead body in the workshop is the inventor. But who done it? Nora wants to know. The titular thin man is dead. Right. So who did it? Nora wants to know. We want to know. The characters want to know. The cops want to know. Everyone wants to know who did it. Who's the only person who knows who did it? The person who did it is the only person who knows because not even Nick knows who did it. However, Nick is so freaking cool that he invites all the suspects over for dinner and manages to walk his way into making the murderer reveal himself. Boom. Yes. Cold yes. cocks him yes. out. Case solved. 
Nick and Nora, the inventor's daughter, and I don't know at this point in the story if it's the fiance or if they're married, but the fiance slash husband are on a train and the cute dog does something cute. The end. Like it ends with them going to bed. They're gonna the newlyweds are gonna get it on. And Asta's going to have to sleep in the top bunk because Nick and Nora are in the bottom bunk yeah. doing it. Because they sleep in separate beds. So it's nice to have them come together. It's just Hayes Code madness. Um, yeah, or I, I think by this time, the this is postcode. Yeah, I think. or Because I, I, I was looking it up the other day. Um, the code, I think, is a 33 or 34, and this movie's 34. So it's right yeah. on the cusp for sure. Um, yeah. What, oh, what a movie, man. <laughs> clever, clever, clever on top of clever. There's just zingers throwing. It, you... If you look away from this movie for one second, you would have missed five different things that happened that were hilarious or witty or, you know, even visually. We talk about on this podcast all the time that comedies don't really have a necessity to be visually daring or interesting. But the way that they cut uh, or the way that they showed the thin man, the inventor, where he's walking down the street and his shadow is cast long and thin. uh, There's just it's wonderful. It's so beautifully dressed as well. Dolly Tree designed Nora Charles outfits in the movie, which are just these gorgeous bias cut gowns and daytime outfits and robes with long sleeves and for trims it's just beautiful and then her entrance in the movie is one of my favorite character introductions too because so we get character introduced to nick and he's at the bar right showing them how to make drinks right how did you like that introduction to him uh yeah i immediately you are just charmed by this guy and yeah, I don't know. Sonia told me he wasn't, but was William Powell drunk during the filming of this movie? I don't know if he was as drunk as his character was. He plays a great William Powell. Oh, he plays an excellent drunk, and I would say that William. I, I don't know if some. I don't know if you would call him the Tom Hanks of his day. I could see, but he was he was the leading man in a lot of comedies. And he was really great in that role as kind of, you know, you were saying it's Spike Spiegel-like, where he's cool, he doesn't take himself too seriously, he's willing to let himself get made fun of as much as he gets to deliver the punchlines himself. You know, he can be, you know, the object of the joke and and still come out looking really cool. It's very Uh, much a yes and philosophy where oh you're gonna oh, yeah. me for this thing that i do well yeah and i'm gonna do it even more or do it with this twist and well that's what makes him and mirna loy so good together because so he's the tom hanks she's like the meg ryan where she's cute 
She often gets cast as the wife to a lot of famous leading men in that era. You know, everyone from Clark Gable to Cary Grant. She's played the wife in a million movies, but she always does it with such charm uh, to where the way that they banter and volley with each other just feels so natural. One of the funniest parts of the movie for me was when uh, the daughter of the inventor, I think it is, hugs William Powell, hugs Nick, and is all like all over Nick. And then Nora comes into the room and sees Nick hugging this pretty young little girl. And Nick gives her a look of like, I don't know. And Nora's reaction is like, mm, like sticks her tongue out at him. Like, you know, like there's no sense of like, oh my God, he's cheating on me. Like the, the conflict, there, there's zero conflict in that scene. And it's funny because there's zero conflict and they just get along so well that the humor comes from just how cute they are together and how like how they immediately have this telepathy of, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> oh, they're very good at wordless communication with each other. They're just, it's just so easy and lived in. Uh, I, I love their dynamics so much. Uh, I love that he's always joking about him just marrying her for her money. Uh, And she's always joking about how she doesn't actually care about him. At one point, she's like, oh, I don't care. I'm just used to you. Uh, But she really does care. Uh, I tell Sonia that she's a dummy all the time. And she tells me that I'm a dummy all the time. But it's it's just how some couples are. You just say like, eh. I don't really like you, but of course you do really like them. I liked the scene a lot where uh, one of the suspects came in and he has, he pulls a gun on Nick and Nora and they're together. And yes, it's kind of frowny, squicky when William Powell basically punches Myrna Loy to get her on the floor so she's out of um, the range of the shots. But he, you know, this movie is like Carrie is filled with tension. And the thin man is, even though it's a murder plot, it's tension free, basically. Even when the gun is on Nick and Nora and it's supposed to be tense, uh, the resolution of that scene happens so quickly. She goes to the ground. Asta crawls under a table, which is cute and funny. Uh, And then he disarms the gunman. And then the police come in right away. There's no struggle. There's no extended, you know, grasping for the gun to where you think, oh, is he not going to prevail? He does. And then we get a cute little joke right after where she says, you didn't have to knock me out. I knew you were going to get him. I wanted to be there to see it. Right. Yeah, and then it's called back later where she gets to see him catch the real killer. And oh, what a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so delightful. Two, two really quick, like, specific shots to point out how comedy can be done visually is when the uh, the weird psychology kid, the son of... Gilbert? Gilbert when he's talking with his mom uh, and sister and they're, they're going back and forth. And I think it's this, the daughter of the inventor at one point goes like, well, you know, 
it's it's all this one kind of wide shot with all three of them in a living room and stuff and it's just a normal shot but at one point the daughter goes well you know chris could get a job or do some work and you're like chris who's chris and then this figure stands up from a chair like that we didn't see him sitting in because the chair's facing away from us so we just see a figure stand up it cuts to him and he puts his coat together and then he walks out on his his girlfriend wife whatever and uh he's like i don't need to be made fun of and mocked when really he's just loafing off of or mooching off of her but just that idea of the character standing up from the background like what a great character introduction you know <laughs> uh and then there's a scene where where someone i forget who but one of the characters is talking on the phone and nick is in the background fiddling with his gun his little bb gun or he's fiddling with something and the character's leaning forward and so the character who's getting all the information is out of focus, which is to kind of symbolize that it, the, the information, the whodunit, the, the rabbit's foot. I just watched Mission Impossible 3, so I know it's MacGuffin, but the rabbit's foot is that that's not what's important. What's important is Nick and how he reacts to everything. So as the character who's getting all the plot is in the foreground of the scene out of focus the camera is focused on nick who's just like spike spiegel in the background just kind of chilled back sitting back but the moment the character says something we don't need to know what that something is we just need to know that when nick raises an eyebrow and goes like that's interesting we just know that nick is so competent that oh something something perked his interest i bet you he'll be able to figure it out um yeah, it's amazing. Like the who the murderer is is zero consequence to the plot. Yeah, and it wasn't anybody that I had guessed either when I I mean, I think I'd seen this movie before, but it was a long time ago. So I could I couldn't even remember right. which one of them was the murderer. So good. So good. Um, but yeah, this I want to make this a new Christmas favorite. You know how they say Die Hard's a Christmas movie? I think that The Thin Man should be in the canon, the Christmas canon. Yeah, it had a solid Christmas theme around. Yeah, I it's it's not flashy. It's not it doesn't flaunt its Christmas spirit, but it's it's a yeah, it's a solid Christmas movie. Um so this this movie if I had to describe this movie in in one word the the only word i could think of would be like uh, i maybe this isn't the right word but the word that i'm thinking of is like nightmare because when i think of a movie like this i just think of this movie reminds me of the movie rocky in the sense of like the character rocky his goal isn't to win his goal isn't to do the big flashy thing and knock out apollo creed right nick's goal in the movie isn't to like do the big flashy thing and catch the murderer without like he he really lucks into catching the murderer and then it's resolved super quickly um but rocky wants to go the 12 rounds he wants to go the distance and i can't imagine making this movie being a writer on this movie being an actor on this movie being a crew member cinematographer director on this movie and having to go the distance of making a movie like this that's so jam-packed with stuff and just every day must be a nightmare of like, we have so many balls to juggle in the air. How is this going to come together? But then 
oh man, does this movie come together? Lax labor laws, <laughs> a totally different time of studio system that kept actors like Shadow um, and directors like Shadow. I, you know, I always have to remind myself that movies made in the 30s. I mean, we we talk a lot about certain people like Hitchcock, people who the French decided were auteurs, but a lot of directors and filmmakers back in those days were just jobbers right. you know i i didn't dig enough to accurately say this but if i recall correctly this was a b movie it wasn't a movie that they expected to have a lot of success they were adapting it from a dashiell hammett um mystery novel and so i think that they were they were expecting it to just be a b movie uh, but it ended up being a huge hit, and then they made you know five to ten more The Man so movies <laughs> with uh, with William Powell and Myrna Loy, and that's not even including all of the screwball comedies they made that weren't The Thin right. Man. Um, those two starred in so many movies together; it's ridiculous. Uh, but I. I have no idea if they knew what they were doing when they were making this movie or if it was just a job. It feels like, if I had to guess, it feels like it was probably just a job for them, but that everyone was thinking, yeah, we get to make movies for a job. Let's have fun, you know? Uh, So much fun. I also like, one of the things I really like in a comedy movie is when the characters take what they're saying and doing seriously. So the humor is something that comes through only to the audience. Like when the daughter is talking to her fiance and she's talking about how their kids are going to turn out to be murderers. And she says, well, perhaps they'll all murder each other and keep it in the family. And she doesn't say that line like she's conscious of how funny it is. She says that line like she's actually just in her own world, venting it out and has no idea how ridiculous it sounds. And then Gilbert comes in and says, well, actually, only one out of four of your children could be murderers. So maybe you should just have one. But uh, maybe you shouldn't do that because it could be the first one that's the murderer. But he's saying this completely deadpan seriously, um, which makes it funnier. Yeah, I know that people say they don't make them like this anymore. And I mean, it's true, they don't make... 1930s screwball detective murder mystery movies like this anymore but again i don't know why because it's been a while since i've actually watched uh, a marvel movie but i thought of infinity war i thought like this movie just feels like the greatest hits and infinity war was it was the greatest hits of marvel it was just yeah let's just have fun let's just go out there and have some fun um and then the other thing I was thinking, because this is because uh, we're in quarantine COVID times, is I, I think that a lot of people could make the mistake. I mean, it's not a mistake. You know, you do you. But I think a lot of people could say justifiably, I guess, that this movie is like escapism. Right. Like, let's get lost in this fantastical world. Let's forget about our troubles. Uh, let, let's just have fun watching these 
these two characters, Nick and Nora, have fun. And then maybe we'll find out who solves some of these murders. But to me, it almost seems like, again, in the Infinity War Marvel aspect, where I think the difference between Marvel and DC is with with characters like Iron Man and Captain America, these B-level characters who were not the mainstay of Marvel uh, and, you know, who a lot of people thought were one-note characters because I never read the comics. I was like, yeah, Captain America, he's a goody two-shoes, right? But no, these characters are setting an example for what we could be. They're being heroes in the sense of they're leading by example. I think Nick and Nora are heroes in the sense that they lead by example and show you no, this is what a healthy relationship looks like. This is... Right, marriage can be playful. The tension of a rom-com doesn't have to come from us arguing all the time. We, if, if, you know, I know things are bad and this movie takes place, it was shot during the Great Depression, right? So, like, people wanted to go see a fun movie. They wanted to get lost in the escapism. But it's also like, yeah, it is fun and escapey, but maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's something to having this positive vibe and just being good to people. And, you know, I just, I, I thought that, that, you know, it's kind of like Wally. Like, Wally was a depressing kind of movie because the world ended. But then Wally and Eve fall in love and it's cute. Yeah. Do you feel like Nora, when she stares out at the Christmas party and tells Nick that she loves him because he has such wonderful friends? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, isn't that sort of the mood that you're talking about where it's so cute? So I like the idea of going to a party and, and having a good time, but oof. So you're like Asta in that scene yeah. where he's like, oh, yeah, get all these people out of here. I, I, I loved, I love the joke with the man who's like, I want to call my family, but I don't have any nickels. And Nick is like, he's the phone. And then he says, hello, operator. I want to call long distance. <laughs> yeah. And it just, <laughs> and then, and then you see him later his storyline is continued and he's just saying, I want to talk to mom. Yeah. It's yeah. Every little character um, is it's, you know, the, everyone is utilized to maximum efficiency in this movie. Yes. Yes, they are. It is, it is brilliant. So did you have anyone in this movie that you wanted to kill? It's so hard to kill someone in this movie because everybody's so wonderful. But I guess if we're going to kill someone, I would kill one of the ones that were going to get killed anyways, which is Nunheim, the guy who was the secretary's other boyfriend, who was also married. And his wife was like, I don't want to be married to no stool pigeon. Uh, And he was like, shut up, bitch, or whatever he said. And then as soon as she was about to leave, he was he said, oh, I'll change. Come on, I'll change. Right. I I felt like that guy deserved to die. Uh, so I, I didn't mind that he was the next victim of the killer. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were some people in here who were who were despicable, but at the same time, um, 
they you know they were despicable in that juicy villainy way uh i would have yeah i would have killed off chris who was caesar romero he was such a sleazeball man such a chris is he's Chris is the dandy who was married to the ex-wife. Yes. And so he's the one who stands up from the chair and puts his shirt together and is like, if you guys are going to accuse me of not working, I'm going to leave. When really he's just sitting around not working. Oh, he's so sleazy. And then the fact that it's like he and his previous wife were clearly trying to get money out of the ex-wife. Like they'd been running their own little scheme on the side. Yeah. Uh, what a sleaze ball! Terrible. Uh, again, like even the sleaze balls in this movie are, they're pretty fun. True story. So, did you want to go into your remake first, or? Sure, I can go first. So people might get angry at me for this uh, for this remix. Like I'm sure they got angry when I destroyed the Princess Bride. No, no, your Princess Bride um, was so good. I know, but it's like when you mess with people's favorites, you know that's that's tense stuff, right? Oh, you're not messing with it. You're you're doing the job of horrifying the Princess Bride. You're you're complimenting the movie by by giving it its best horrific incarnate uh, incarnation. Okay, that's what I want people to understand. This is this is just a job. Right. I don't want to hurt anybody. But that brings us to the horror version of the thin man, which I just decided to call the fat man. Sure. I, I uh, own so the victim that way as well. <laughs> so the victim the victim in this horror movie is the fat man. So we start out Nick and Nora Charles are currently estranged because of a conflict in their marriage that they refuse to talk about with anyone else. So no one knows what's wrong. No one knows. Was Nora spending too much money of her inheritance? Did Nick cheat on Nora? Uh, Did Nora cheat on Nick? Um, They haven't divorced, but they're living in separate residences. And they're sharing custody of Asta. So the dog is going back and forth between Nick and Nora. And, you know, he's all sad. Um, and the world is just upside down with this this entire thing. But it's the day after Christmas. So Nora's remembering the good times, how things used to be when they were tight, when they were close. And Nora gets a call from the police about Nick. They want to take him into custody because he just witnessed the murder of a mob informant, the titular fat man. Uh, And Nick has slipped the police because he's got some other ideas. Uh, So Nora acts like she doesn't really care whatever mess Nick is in. They're estranged, blah, blah, blah. She doesn't care about her husband. But when she hangs up, she immediately changes out of one of her gorgeous dressing gowns into a sensible yet fashionable day suit because she's totally going to go look for Nick. Uh, But Nora's a smart woman. She looks out the window. She can see that there's plainclothes cops that are ambling around and they're just ready for her to leave the condo where she is and find Nick and then lead them straight to Nick. 
so Nora decides to avoid the police by going up to the roof of the building and using that to cross to another rooftop. Uh, so she's not seen by the police. But then while she's doing that, she gets caught by this young hotshot reporter played by Jimmy Stewart in my reimagining. Uh, and they have some flirty banter. And you're kind of wondering, does Nick have some competition? Has has Nora reached the point in their broken marriage where she's willing to pursue a romance with someone else? We don't know. Um, but she agrees to let Jimmy tag along to help figure out where Nick went. And it's here that I should be transparent and admit that a lot of the plotting of this movie is based on an existing movie called Woman on the Run. Okay. So if you would like to see an amazing female starring noir movie, uh, Woman on the Run is great. Um, but if you've seen that movie, you'll get a taste of where I'm going. Uh, so now we're getting towards the middle act and it's just going to be lots of interviewing and Nora and Jimmy sniffing out Nick's trail. But so at the same time as we're trying to figure out the mystery of where Nick is, we're also trying to figure out the mystery of why Nick and Nora are estranged and what's going on there. And as Nora goes along, she finds evidence that Nick still loves her, that he still cares about her, that he wants them to be together, that that he's still in love with his wife. And it's not just about her money like he's always joking about. Uh, and so Nora's all torn. What is she going to do? Meanwhile, Jimmy Stewart is just giving us his wholesome cuteness like he does in Philadelphia Story, if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, and then they finally figure out where Nick is going. It's going to be this busy nightclub on New Year's Eve, uh, and they're going to go there to meet him. And then at the same time, the police catch up to the plot, and then so, so do the mob. So all three groups are going to be at the nightclub. Nick. Nora, Jimmy, the mob, the police, it's all coalescing in the same place, just like the original right. movie. So we're at the club. Nick and Nora have a reunion in the liquor storeroom, which knowing them and their shared alcoholism, I figured re-meeting in the liquor storeroom would be perfect for right. them. Um, and it seems like things are going to be tense at first, but then they hold each other and they kiss and we finally learn what really happened. And what really happened was Nora had a miscarriage and they both really grieved super hard, but it's the 1930s. So no one goes to therapy or talks about their feelings. And Nora thought that Nick felt like it was her fault and Nick thought that Nora felt like it was his fault. So each of them were thinking that the other person was blaming them for what happened and then beating themselves up for it. And then they realized it was all just a big misunderstanding. And then you think like, oh, this is wonderful. But then somebody shoots the whiskey case right next to Nick's head. You turn and see that it's Jimmy, the reporter, and Nick confirms that it was Jimmy that he saw shoot the fat man. Oh. 
And then he'll make some pithy, witty remark about wasting alcohol, you know, because he shot he shot the liquor case. Like, how dare you? Uh, and so epic fight scene in the liquor room between Nick and Jimmy. Nick takes Jimmy down. Jimmy gets arrested. And then you end the movie with Nick and Nora moving back in together and then they're directing the movers to move a king-sized bed into the bedroom because at least in my it's still the 1930s in my version but I want to make it clear they're sleeping in the same bed like it's on yeah so it's I guess not really a horror I mean it is but it I kept, I wanted to do the romance. I couldn't help myself. It's like you with the horror. This one was really hard too, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, I like it. It's it's amazing how this movie really leaned into the film noir murder mystery aspect and how well it did it too. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think it's W.S. Van Dyke right is the thin man director i feel like he's done a couple of noirs he's definitely familiar with the look yeah it looks great sounds great everything about this movie is great so so tell me where did you struggle Um, with this one so i called mine the tired man oh nice all right uh i i made it more about nick and norman and Norman is a guy, and they're in prison. And I wanted to focus on the relationship between Nick and Norman, but I wanted it to be a relationship and not a romance. Right? Okay. And so they're both... Okay. I should have come up with actors. I was thinking about it, but... Like like Ben... So kind of like how Ben Affleck or... Yeah, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are ride-or-die brothers. Right. Yeah, so there's a there's a, a relationship there, but it's not you know I, it's not going to be any even though they're in prison and they're in the same cell and I'm sure there's plenty of jokes we could make about that. The movie's just going to be like no, this these two guys are stuck together, they're miserable together, whatever, whatever. Um, and so Norman, here, here's my my thinking of the movie is Norman is ever only going to be sitting in the top bunk. Right. And probably always mostly laying down. And he is, uh, um, let me see if I can get this right. My notes on this movie are all over the place. I think Norman is a character who, who did something really, really, really bad. Like some kind of like, like with a kid, like with a kid. But you later throughout the course of the movie learn, because that's why he's always in his cell, is he can't leave the cell or else all the other inmates mm. are going to kill him, you know? Like Steve Buscemi in uh, Con Air, right? Yes. Um, and so he, he, can't, he can't really leave his cell or else he'll get murdered. So he's just kind of sitting in his cell. And then over the course of the movie, you learn that he gave a fake confession to, to doing this horrible thing that he did. But the reason, the reason why he gave the fake confession is because he does have those urges, though. And he knows, because maybe he's like a psychiatristy, therapisty kind of guy. He's So I'm thinking he's like Hannibal Lecter, only if Hannibal Lecter was kind of like a good guy. And so he, 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 he knows that he's got these urges to, like, kill small children or something. 
and he doesn't want to act on it. So he knows the best thing for him to do is to remove himself from society. But while he's sitting in his cell and he can't leave his cell because all the other people will kill him, he decides he's going to take Nick on as like his patient, quote unquote. And so what did Nick do? Well, Nick did something really bad in the past. And when I say really bad, I mean like really bad. So I'm thinking he killed three campers out in some national park. And it was like a Charlie, Charles Manson kind of, you know, sort of thing about like, it was sensationalistic. It was all over the newspapers, but the murders were so bad that no one knows any of the details. All they know is that they were really bad. So Nick is also up for parole because of bureaucracy, you know? Coronavirus? Uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll think of some reason, <laughs> but basically they're they're saying Nick has to be paroled, and I'm thinking that there could be the scene of where Nick is like, I don't want to be paroled. I'm still paying my punishment for doing this thing. And they're like, no, you don't understand. The parole isn't an option. You have to go. You have to leave. So like his parole is set for one month, right? And so there's a lot of gangs in the prisons. There's a lot of rivalries, the guards, the warden, the tension. There's, a, there's just a lot of male, sin city, masculine, machismo, just people yes. with their fists beating on each other kind of tension. And so here's the thing. People started dying, right? And what I like about the Thin Man is the first death we see is just the aftermath. The second death we see is we see the killer shoot the guy, but we don't see who it is. The third death mm -hmm. is involves some kind of twist, right? Because you think it's the the fat man, but it's really the thin man. And then the fourth kill, like quote unquote kill, is the killer. So in, in the thin man, he just kind of gets knocked out. But horror movie, we're going to kill the killer, you know? Yeah. So the first thing that happens where we start to get hints of this kind of stuff is we get hints of like paramedics and maybe there's an item and maybe our character is like doing stuff in the kitchen and he sees a blade and the blade has blood on it. But then next to the kitchen is like a trinket from one of his victims that like 15 <gasps> years ago. So also all of my people in my movie are going to be super old. Yes. And, and the, the, the murder that took place years ago took place years ago, like decades ago. So when Nick sees this... My favorite kind, a cold case. So when Nick sees this trinket from one of his victims, it causes this flashback kind of thing where, like, we know that this trinket means something. And maybe he, maybe it's like a locket and he opens it up and it's, you know, a girl and a guy, like high school sweethearts or something. And we get the sense that this is bothering him. And then this is what's cool is after each of the death scenes, we get a scene of, like, a quote-unquote therapy session where norman is talking to nick in the cell and we start to get hints of what nick did but he's very reserved because he feels like he didn't enjoy what he did but we start to get a sense of why he did it over the course of the movie and i don't know why he did it i'll have to come up with a good reason but you know it's just, it's a start the second kill is we see, oh, and after the first kill, a detective comes in, like an infernal, internal of course, detective. Of course. In the second kill, we see a shadowed killer do something really gruesome to the body. And Nick is roughed up 
by the guards and brought into the detective and the detective has a bunch of like trinkets and photos from the original massacre site and so we don't get to see like the close-up pictures of the site but we again we we tease the idea that what happened was really violent but we don't tell people what happened Mm -hmm. after nick goes to talk to the detective nick goes back to talk to norman we get another little therapy hannibal lectory kind of session the other twist is the detective is slain and then uh there's like a tribute to nick so it's like nick we killed this detective in your honor right like we're trying to oh, look no. out for you. We're doing this for you because of you. So it's almost like a cat kind of thing. So, because everyone thinks that that Nick did it, right? Because it's like, oh, these are just like the murders he committed 80 years ago. But now the killer is kind of saying, I'm the real killer. I did this in tribute to you. No. So then, Nick, you're in trouble. Yeah. So then the fight ends with uh like there's a cell fight between you know maybe we'll have like a guard who's like a, a top henchman guard who you know is is like a, a recognizable type actor who's really good and he goes to bring Nick into the warden but Nick is like no if the killer wants me he's going to come and get me. So I don't want to go to the warden. I don't want to go to solitary confinement. I don't want to go to the hospital ward section. The killer is out to get me. I'm staying put. And the guard is like, well, I have to take you in. So they have a little scrap. And Nick, at the end of the fight, is like, he's got the guy on the ground. And he's about to rip his jaw out. And he's like, you know, really, again, like really Sin City, really gruesome and violent. And he's like, either you go tell the warden that I don't want to leave my cell or you'll never tell anyone anything again. And the guy's like, all right. He like taps <gasps> out. He's like, all right, all right, all right. Don't rip my jaw off, please. That sounds like a horrible experience. So then the guard leaves. Nick and Norman are in the cell. Maybe they have some little dialogue. And then the warden comes in and the warden turns out to be the killer. Here's the giallo plot twist. The warden <gasps> was a park ranger at the park where Nick originally committed the murders. And Nick doesn't know that. You know what I mean? Like, how would Nick know? And the the, the case was so sensationalized that no one knew anything about it because it was so bad that, that no one would have known that the park ranger who discovered the bodies, no one would like know what he looks like, right? So Nick doesn't know that. That's nice. Right, so... So, so his killing helped awaken another killer. No, so the 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 warden wanted to make sure that he was so. I guess we could take it in a twisty way. Where like, um, I, I mean, I think this is a cool idea, but you know, there's there's weird things about it because it's a it's a rough draft of an idea. But yeah, mm-hmm. maybe either he becomes like. Lumisy, where he's obsessed with him and wants to know evil or maybe he becomes a killer himself but my thinking was that he just wants to make sure that this guy never gets out again right and it's about two characters who don't want to kill people but but once once nick gets released on parole so like you know your parole is set for one month that sends the warden into a fucking crazy like there's no justice in this world i'm just gonna kill every bad guy ever he kind of like becomes punisher obsessed of like you know what fuck it if the law 
Like I, I obeyed the law. I got into the law system. I became the warden. I upheld the law. The law said this guy was going to spend life in prison. And I was here to ensure Nuts. that the law was upheld. But now that the law is saying this guy can go free, fuck the law. All these all these prisoners, I'm going to kill you. This detective guy, I'm going to kill you because you were going to let him go. Like, I, he just goes crazy. So then the warden and Nick have a brutal fight in the cell with Norman kind of like super chill and just taking notes. And then something brutal, like really brutal. Like, you know, at the end of Sin City, when Hardigan smashes that guy's face into a pulp and he's just like, he's like, Mm -hmm. point my fists were just hitting the pulp of the wood. And you know, it's so great. Uh, So there's some super brutal murder. And then the cell is open, right? So Nick walks out of the cell and like, everything seems really dreamlike like carrie like all the prisoners are like whoa this guy's on a whole nother level so nick walks away and then all of the doors to the prison are open so nick like is just in this rage but also this carrie-esque vibe of like what is going serenity and he walks out of prison and all the guards are standing there with their like semi-automatics, but they're not doing anything. So Nick walks away and he stands outside of the prison and he gets a taste of just freedom. Like we show it visually or cause you know, I don't want him to like walk out of prison and go, ah, freedom. I want to do it in a cool visual way. Um, mm-hmm. So Nick gets a taste of freedom. And then as he starts to walk away, maybe the head guard will be the one who's, who gives the order. But, you know, the, the head ah. is in the moment of, like, you got your freedom, you're walking away, I'll let you enjoy it as much as I can, but now, hey, guards, all these guards with semi-automatic weapons, uh, fire. And then all the guards just mowing down. And that's the end of the movie, is him, he gets oh. that little taste of freedom, and then he dies. He just got, like, one raindrop of Shawshank Redemption and then pulled back into the nightmare. You know, so we like these movies with these grumpy, reluctant heroes and stuff like that. I really wanted to have that idea of this guy is fated to be a brutal murderer, like a, a a muscle bound. Uh, What's the, what's the word in film noirs where you're like a brute guy not muscle a heavy yeah, he's like a heavy um but he doesn't want to yeah. be a heavy you know he's very rambo as very dread ass where he doesn't want to be violent but because of these killings and because the warden is like i'm gonna kill you for what you did in your past he is forced to use his violence to protect himself but also to kind of dish out some retribution but again i don't know how to like i don't i i, I don't think that we need to make nick uh, a likable character in the sense that I think he could have done a bad thing in the past. He could have been like, I want to be the next Charles Manson. I want to kill these people, start a call, you know, like Unabomber. Like I have this idea for the world and I want to, I just, I have no idea how to get it out there. So I'm going to kill these people and do it with like satanic imagery. And then after he kills these people, he's like, oh shit that's actually really fucked up i don't ever want to do that ever again but then at the end of the movie he's like forced to and he's like all right fine i'll kill you warden if that's what you really want so yeah. a little sloppy it's a little messy but there's like a little bit of a redemption arc in there and you know it's it's like that gray area of like 
violence isn't good, people. Like, even when violence is good, it isn't good. But it's a movie, so fuck them. Let's rip off their jaws. Right. That's kind of the the thing that's at stake in a movie like History of Violence with Viggo Mortensen, where he's a man who's very intimate with violence and has tried to live his life without it, but must go fully back into the darkness to save his family. And then the victory that's earned is tainted by the violence that he was forced to commit. Right. Yeah. Uh, History of Violence. Uh, oh, man. Total catnip on paper for me. I cannot stand that movie. Ugh, I hate it. If you didn't like the movie, I would recommend reading the comic. Okay. The comic is a little bit different from the movie. It has a slightly different twist that is horrifying okay. and disgusting. Yeah, I, I like the movie. So I just awful. didn't like the movie. Um, yeah, the, the, the comic, the graphic novel that it's based on is great. Uh, but you know, your warden character, when you were describing him, I did have an actor that immediately came to mind and I think we've talked about him before, but Michael Shannon, I was going to say Michael Shannon for one of the characters, but (laughs) I also just watched Waco. Did you watch Waco on Netflix? No, I haven't. Is it about the Branch Davidians? Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, but it's it's a it's a good movie. It's a good series. Um, yeah, so I just uh, I, I had Michael Shannon on the mind, but yeah, I did use him in one of my movies. He's so good. Yes. No, no, he just seems like the kind of relentless lawman who would do something violent or morally reprehensible in the name of law. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or yeah justice. Yeah. So I'm curious to know now that we've got all this quarantine free time, uh, what your love bites are going to be. I'm sure you've got a lot that you've caught up on. Well, I, so I tailor, a lot of times I like to tailor, sometimes we'll do our love bites on, oh, this is what I've been into recently. But one of the sad things that's happened during this quarantine is that I'm not reading as much as I used to. Uh, For example, in March, I read maybe 10 books. And then in April, I read zero uh where i finished i finished a book that i started in february and that book was about medieval christianity so it was dry as hell uh but i i haven't you know been getting into things as much i've been doing a lot of rewatches of shows i watched in the past like parks and rec and stuff like that but for this mother's day special uh i chose two love bites so the first love bite is in relation to carrie because if you have seen carrie and you are familiar with adam sandler's early comedic work you may have heard a comedy album called they're all gonna laugh at you Uh, And I'm not here to recommend the entire album, but specifically the They're All Gonna Laugh At You skit. If you YouTube search, I think Adam Sandler, Oh Mom. And the skit is this. 
it's Adam Sandler and his so-called siblings, and they're at the dinner table with mom, and they're about to tell her, hey, I'm thinking I want to go to a baseball game after this. And then exactly like how Piper Laurie says it in Carrie, Adam Sandler shouts, no, they're all going to laugh at you. And then it just goes on and on, and he keeps saying that. But I fucking love that skit. I think it's hilarious. I call back to it with my own siblings all the time. Shouting that out is incredibly satisfying. <laughs> and if you've seen Carrie, now you know the reference. Uh, and then my other recommendation is for a little movie from 1936 called Libel Lady. Uh, it's a screwball comedy with Myrna Loy and William Powell. And then the other two famous actors on the billing are Spencer Tracy and Gene Harlow. So Spencer Tracy is a newspaper guy. Gene Harlow is his fiance. William Powell is just kind of like a playboy. And then Myrna Loy, Nora, is the titular um, libel lady where... Um, Basically, Spencer Tracy has this scheme where he wants William Powell to seduce uh, Myrna Loy because she's suing Spencer Tracy for libel. And then comedy ensues. But it's just it's a fun screwball movie. And then Jean Harlow's in it. And she and Myrna Loy did a bunch of movies together. And then even though William Powell and Myrna Loy played a couple on on screen, uh, in real life, William Powell and uh, Gene Harlow were involved with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting, like like they in the movie, they play types that seem like they would never go together. But then in real life, they were together and Myrna Loy and William Powell were, ne were never into each other. Right. So it's just, I don't know, it's it's a fun little movie if you enjoy those actors. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. Um... Yeah, Sony is definitely into those kinds of movies. So we, um, I, I like a lot of these older movies, man. They they hold up for a reason. They're they're called classics for a reason. Oh yeah, I mean, well, this is that's why people say that the best film school is Turner Classic Movies. Yeah. If you if you watch a bunch of old movies, you'll learn where a lot of these techniques and ideas and the visual language came from. Uh, you know, it's De Palma steals from Hitchcock, Quentin Tarantino steals from De Palma and Cirque and, you know, so many other people uh, from the older eras. Yeah, I would definitely say both of these movies are essential viewing if you're really into making films. Um, I mean, if you're just a casual yes, fan of films, like, you know, you know what you like, you know what you don't like. But if you're into films... Both of these are, are masterclass pieces, man. They're so good. What are your love bites? Uh, so I didn't pick anything that was related to my mom. I guess I could tie it to my mom. Okay, so Oscars, we talked about at the beginning. I said Oscars are dumb, right? And you were like, no, celebration is good. And I was like, whatever, sheer up. I never said, I was just saying said, Shut celebrating up, actors is good. <laughs> so... 
but the the tie-in is i always watch the oscars with my mom even if we're in separate cities like we have been we're always like texting each other and and you know like i watch the, the oscars are fun because i watch them with my mom you know um but ranking things is dumb and you know what is the most dumbest thing that you could rank superheroes that's why one punch man is one of my favorite series of all time because one oh i just rewatched it and one punch man is I, like i have no words to describe this show this show is amazing it's i mean i'm not an anime guy in the sense that i don't my my diet doesn't solely consist of anime but Right. I'm so thankful for the people who are like super duper into anime. Like that's all they watch because without that, I probably would not have watched one punch man. So I had the general internet going like, no, this is really good. And then I had a few personal recommendations like from you and from some other people that I knew who were like, oh, no, this show's really good. And I knew there had to be something more to it than just, this guy can defeat anyone with one punch. And it's so good. <laughs> like, I, again, I can't describe, like, the, the premise is, is this guy can beat up anyone with one punch. But there's so much going on, and it's so funny, and it's so endearing, and it's so complicated because all these villains have these different motivations, and some of them are really one-dimensional, but some of them are three-dimensional, and like the movie star or the series starts out with just like one mini episode arcs, but then the first season ends with like a three or four series arc or three or four episode arc. But then the whole second series is like 10 or 12 episodes of just this one arc that doesn't get resolved. Mm -hmm. And oh, like season, when is season three going to come out, man? Like this show is freaking incredible like i don't know how to describe how much i love this show it's it's on a whole nother level it's got a lot of crossover appeal uh i i know that we we might not necessarily see eye to eye on on some things like castlevania for example but on one punch man i agree wholeheartedly and i would also say that if you don't really like anime that you could still watch one punch man and find it really funny and endearing and hilarious it's not something to where you have to be big into anime to enjoy it it's i think it's got a lot of crossover I, appeal i i want to agree but i also kind of disagree because one of the things that i love about one punch man is how much it satirizes anime so like i, I grew up a little bit i didn't grow up on but i grew up around dragon ball z and i've tried to go back and re-watch dragon ball z and i cannot do it i tried to jump into dragon ball i think it's super and i could not do it I've tried to get into the other animes over time and I've just gotten very good about not being a completionist and like, Oh, I started this anime, but it didn't really grab my attention. I'm just going to drop it. The thing that I don't like about all those animes is what one punch man does to the nth degree and makes it so over the top that it becomes genius which is this idea of like 
your characters are always one-upping each other and they always have a gimmick mm-hmm. and they've always got these grand monologues and they've always got like, oh, he did this super move, but if I do this super move, I can counter. And the other guy's like, aha, I knew you were going to do that super move, so I'm going to do this move. And it's just like, it's so dumb, but it's so Did good. you think just because you killed me that I was dead? right it's you know like Like they fight this giant centipede monster but then the centipede monster is really the smallest one and there's an even bigger one but then there's an even bigger one and you're like what in this uh, (laughs) man he just punches them one hit one hit ko it's uh, ah yeah i just i love one punch man it's it's so good that's all i can say is it's so good (laughs) It's great. No, it, it's definitely great. Good, good recommendation. All right. I guess it's time that we say goodbye to all our mommies that we're celebrating today. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we should also do our, our housekeeping work now that we have the, the fear and threat of mothers hanging over us. Do our housekeeping work. Uh, we're on... I'm going to make our mommies proud. Yes, we're on Twitter at necromancer pod and what are we on instagram the necromancer podcast and facebook necromancer pod and email necromancer podcast at gmail.com please reach out to us question us suggest things yeah uh yell at us we, i think now we're about we're i think we're just about 20 episodes in so we've got a we've got a, a good bit idea. Less, but we're getting there. Yeah, we've got a good idea of what direction we're going, but feedback appreciated. It's always good just to hear from people, and then just to see all the fire ass content that I'm posting on Instagram, the meme game on Facebook. People can rip the into other me. content. The what? The other content that we produce. Yeah. For example, by the time that this episode airs, it will have already happened, but Austin Film Society and um, Cold Town Theater reading the first three pages of Brett's screenplay, Night of the Bat, which I've had the pleasure to get to read and give notes on. And it has, you know, my favorite catnip, which is the grumpy hero. Very grumpy. It's, uh, it's, it's really fun. And I hope, so are they going to record it afterwards and, and leave it online? I assume so. So it's, uh, it's not AFS, but it's AFF, Austin Film Fest. Yes. And I don't know if they record them in the past, but because it's all digital and, and COVID and stuff like that, they're doing a, a virtual thing. So I don't know if they're going to record. It'd be super awesome if they did. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we'll see. Update coming. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, have we done it? Have we done our housekeeping? Can we say that we've made our mothers proud? I think so. I, my mom would be proud of me no matter what. Same here. My mom listens to the podcast. I don't know if she knows what a podcast is. But she'll say the thing you released today was really interesting. So right. I, I know that she appreciates us and she's listening to. Oh, my mom recommends uh, got... me all the time. I think that's how I heard about Pretty <laughs> John was my mom was like, oh, you really? have to listen to this podcast. It's nuts. We've got good supportive moms. Yeah. All right. Good night, mommies. Good night, mommies.
Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.